Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Stephen. I'm Anoush. And I'm Alpha. On this week's New Statesman podcast, we talk about legacy issues in Northern Ireland, Keir Starmer's new operation, and you ask us, are the Conservatives going to go off culture wars? The biggest political story this week in Westminster is, of course, the Northern Ireland office's announcement about how it is going to square the circle of backbench and pressure from the right-wing tabloids to end the witch hunt in heavy inverted commas on British soldiers for historic actions in service, particularly in Northern Ireland, which is, well, yeah, Alva, talk to us a bit about the reaction this has caused both, you know, here in Westminster and in Northern Ireland. The government, none of it is actually really a surprise because it's been clear for quite a while that the government was planning some sort of amnesty on, as you say, for British veterans alleged to have committed crimes in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. Um, and as you say, they've been under quite a lot of pressure to do that, to, you know, quote unquote, end the witch hunt against our boys, um, pressure from tabloids like The Sun, um, but also some quite vocal conservative MPs, including Johnny Mercer, but also people like Marc Francois. And they made a promise that they would do this quite some time ago. And so listeners of the podcast will know, because I think we have talked about this before and we've definitely covered it before, that there was sort of no way that you could ever do that without also providing an amnesty to everyone else alleged to have committed crimes during the Troubles. So this was always going to mean that if you grant an amnesty to British soldiers, you also grant one to members of the IRA, members of the UDA, members of the UVF, to all paramilitaries at the same time. So that's basically what they have announced at long last today with a command paper. They've basically... They briefed it to the newspapers and then there was, a, I think, a quite emotive, tricky debate about it in the House of Commons this afternoon. And then they've published this paper. And it's sort of hard to know where to start on it because actually having had some discussions looking at the, the detail of it, probably the most important thing for listeners to know is that it might not really happen or actually if people are a little bit confused as to what it will really mean or how it will work or what the timetable will be, that's because those things aren't clear. And so even if you look into it, a lot of it is just sort of up in the air. So the plan is to to bring in a new body that will collect information on these incidents during the troubles on like deaths and, and serious injuries but to end all 
criminal and civil proceedings. But that's actually a bit more complicated because it's quite hard to work out how they could end the civil proceedings, whether that would be in compliance with the UK's obligations under the European Convention on Human Rights, for example. So that's all a bit complicated and it might not happen. The Irish government has been very clear that it wouldn't support this and all of the five parties in the Northern Irish Executive are united in not being happy with it and being completely opposed for their different reasons. But no party wants an amnesty, basically. And so there was... I think actually if people are interested in this it's it's worth watching the House of Commons debate on it because it was it was quite sort of sad but good political theater and lots of people made very very punchy persuasive quite moving speeches on the issue and it also got quite heated at some points yeah it's not really clear how it's actually going to pan out whether it will actually work I think the main feeling is just that it's just sort of worth emphasizing that hardly anyone in Northern Ireland wants this and the government has been really criticized for the way it's gone about the the whole process. What I found really interesting from a sort of more geeky parliamentary perspective in the piece that you wrote, which I encourage all of our listeners to to read, which I feel like I'm doing every podcast now, was the fact that there was an SDLP MP who named Soldier F, which is one of the most fraught and notorious cases in in sort of Northern Ireland legacy issues that cover this stuff. He named him in Parliament using parliamentary privilege. And I found the, the sort of bit of analysis in your piece that said sort of this shows the fact that, you know, Sinn Féin doesn't take their seats does actually take away from some of their influence in Westminster. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that and whether or not it could sort of shape the popularity of those two parties. Yeah, so so that happened yesterday with Colm Eastwood, who's the leader of the SDLP and the MP for FOIL, as you say, using parliamentary privilege to name Soldier F. And that was so controversial because a judge did grant Soldier F anonymity because he ruled that there was a serious risk to Soldier F's life from having his identity revealed. He came in for a lot of criticism, particularly from Conservative MPs, for doing that, but he didn't break any rules. And that incident on Bloody Sundays is one of the most emotive cases in all of the Troubles. He represents the area where that happened. Like you were just saying, as a nationalist MP for that area, that was maybe the best example that he could offer of the value of having a nationalist politician take his seat in Westminster. That The SDLP do get a lot of criticism from the nationalist community for taking, you know, pledging allegiance to the Queen and so on, even if they add their caveats. It's not an easy thing for them to do. But Colm Eastwood, I think in particular, because he he faces Sinn Féin and his seat is different. His colleague, Claire Hanna, the other SCLP MP, um, doesn't really face Sinn Féin as a near competitor in South Belfast. But in his seat, if he were to lose it again, it would be to Sinn Féin. So I think he in particular, has a has a strong interest in showing to his constituents that there's value in him being there. And, and certainly, I think that everyone would agree that his was an important voice in the discussion today. I counted the number of Northern Irish people in the chamber, and there were five people, myself included, in the press gallery. And obviously, some people were in over Zoom link, but I think he was the only nationalist perspective really and so even though his views would differ from Sinn Féin and he you know he he 
doesn't necessarily speak for for all the views in the nationalist community. I think that he represented a quite important perspective. One of the sort of other kind of constitutional weirdnesses of all of this is that law and criminal justice is devolved. So the executive would normally be the people who would have first go at legislating this thing that none of the five parties want. How likely is that to happen? An important bit of context is that the justice brief is a really controversial one in Northern Ireland. So it's always given to the Alliance Party because the two big parties don't trust each other with that brief, basically. But in terms of this, I'm not even sure if that makes a difference because there's just no party that wants to see an amnesty. Stephen Farry, the Alliance MP for North Down, made that really, really clear when he zoomed in for his intervention. The new DUP leader, Jeffrey Donaldson, spoke really, really interestingly. His was one of, I think, maybe the best interventions where he just talked about how, you know, there can be no, like, truth and reconciliation without justice. And so I think that it seems really unlikely that the Northern Irish executive would agree to that. But I think that's where it, it where it's just confusing because these are proposals and the UK government has said that it's going to consult with the parties and consult with victims and consult with the Irish government. And the Irish government has taken a, an almost relaxed approach to this by just saying that, you know, well, this is what the UK government wants to do, but it's not a fait accompli and, you know, we'll be having discussions with them. And, you know, I think the subtext is don't worry about it and don't take it too seriously, even though it has been taken very, very seriously and has upset lots and lots of people. And what's interesting is that Keir Starmer has kind of, and you've written about this, sort of moved to a position where he's trying to draw attention to the sort of mess that's been caused in Northern Ireland from Boris Johnson's Brexit deal or Boris Johnson's sort of misleading statements about what the Brexit deal would mean for Northern Ireland. Um, and he went to visit recently. And of course, he's had his experience that working there before he was an MP as well. He used PMQs to bring up this issue and was sort of saying we cannot grant an amnesty to terrorists and others. (laughs) And I just wonder what you think of his position on this and Mm. whether or not the Labour Party has its own alternative. Yeah, because I I thought that's so well observed, (laughs) (laughs) Um, because Because this is the thing, and actually, you know, on that, Keir Starmer is now in alignment with literally the Sun newspaper, which has been campaigning for this, because I think perhaps some journalists at the Sun didn't quite realise that if you campaign for an amnesty for British soldiers, that will amount to an amnesty for the IRA and so this idea that it's, it's some sort of surprise or shock that this is what the government is proposing is is just ridiculous um so he's taking the same line as as them really in terms of emphasizing the shock at the amnesty for the IRA which is the one that I think certainly on the conservative side is the easier point to raise than actually the amnesty for veterans, which is a bit more complicated. So clearly, clearly Keir Starmer is just tapping into that. I think that there has been a little bit of an internal struggle within Labour over not so much what the actual position would be, because Louise Haig, the shadow Northern Ireland secretary, has always had quite a clear position on this. She's really, really across the detail and just wants to have you know, wants to be credible and wants to have the confidence of all the communities across Northern Ireland. And she's worked quite hard on that in a sort of Tony Blair-esque, you know, broker of the peace, Momolum role. But I think that the power struggle has been how you reconcile that with the wider Labour messaging on veterans and and the British Army and so on. And, And this is, I suppose, a lesson for 
Keir Starmer and the wider Labour Party across all policy issues, which is basically like it doesn't really matter what the shadow cabinet member for that area says, it's what bits of your policy programme you get Keir Starmer to say and shout loudly about. So I think it's a bit of a victory for her personally to get him to do that trip to Northern Ireland and to to lead quite heavily on this. And I suppose it's a it's not so much a risk as just in a way he doesn't have a huge amount to gain from it politically, you could say, because there are no votes for him in Northern Ireland. And this, you know, has been a, an, an issue that's been taken up by some Tory MPs, by some tabloids. And it's a sort of, you know, you could you could see it, I suppose, as a bit of a red wall patriotism issue. But in practice, I think that they are just committed to being across the detail on it, um, on modelling a kind of grown-up politics. You know, they talk a lot about gaslighting people in Northern Ireland. I think the fact that absolutely every political party in Northern Ireland is against this, you know, speaks volumes of the kind of the strange imposition of this policy. It's funny that Keir Starmer, obviously on that trip, he he gave lots of interviews and he was asked on, on some other issues as well relating to Northern Ireland and Enda McClafferty, the new political editor of BBC Northern Ireland asked him what if he would support Irish unity, what his position would be on a border poll. I think it's fair to say that Keir Starmer did struggle. <laughs> <laughs> and clearly the the line to take is just that you know it's up to the people of Northern Ireland and that's that's the way it is in the Good Friday Agreement. And I think maybe a more experienced politician would have just dug his heels in and said that a million times and then they would have been forced to cut it to make it because it was it would have been boring. But instead Keir Starmer was interesting and and elaborated a bit more and and gave an answer which is consistent for Labour across the UK, which is that he's a pro-union politician, he's in favour of the UK. But it did totter dangerously on the verge of taking a side in the unionist-nationalist question, when obviously Labour's sister party is the SDLP, a nationalist party. They weren't too annoyed about it. I think they were actually happier that Labour had taken a strong and vocal view on legacy issues and they sort of thought that particularly ahead of the 12th of July it would have been difficult for Keir Starmer to say something else. But it just shows I think that one of the things I enjoy about Northern Irish politics is the way it, it sort of separates the the children from the grown-ups and like it really demands a quite sophisticated approach to politics and you know, Keir Starmer clearly had done a lot of work ahead of his trip and, and there were lots of big victories. But even then, I think just the way there's a particular sensitivity demanded and I think he, he struggled a little bit because you can't fudge that stuff the way you can with some other parts of politics, maybe. Yeah, someone texted me about that interview being like, oh, I see Keir has done his Scotland answer in Northern Ireland. I thought there were two interesting bits of struggling growth, the trip and in the PMQs, because when we were talking about it, I said, well, I just wouldn't have done the interview with... BBC and I, because the purpose of the visit is the stakeholder stuff and the stuff he he wanted to do today. But the interesting thing is, I I now think if he hadn't done that, then he wouldn't have been able to get away with the like, yeah, sort of like a vintage example of slightly shameless opposition politicking, right? In the you know he had six questions to the prime minister as, as per question three, you know, I'm going to quote Johnny Mercer about culture wars, which we'll get into in part two. Question six. 
Did I mention that thanks to Johnny Mercer, you're letting some terrorists get out, get out, get away with? Yeah, it was kind of a real like, wow, this mood whiplash, which also means that Boris Johnson can't do his final answer. But I think it is an interesting trend. I don't know about you, Alpha, but I've been really surprised at how quickly the changes in the Labour leader's office have felt quite obvious from a day-to-day internal working in Westminster perspective. And I think one of them is that he clearly feels more confident doing the, oh, the stuff which is difficult for us. While I think the answer on Friday was not a great answer, it was an intriguingly confident, in many many ways, one of its problems was it was quite a confident answer where perhaps a less confident answer would have been better. But it does feel like there's been a really interesting shift in that operation already. Yeah, I think so. I mean, a lot of this stuff is just behind the scenes and it's sort of, it's all operational is the word so in a way journalists never acknowledge it but it's probably worth acknowledging since we have been talking about the behind the scenes stuff and we've been critical of how that has been working or not working up until now it's worth noting that it has definitely improved in terms of relations between Keir Starmer's office and journalists keeping us in the loop briefing us ahead of things being more accessible. There has been a notable shift as well as the public facing stuff. I think of Keir Starmer maybe being a bit more confident, as you say. I think there have been lots of little examples of just sort of good, cheeky political jibes. You know, I think the Johnson variant was quite smart. I think that they're, they're just sort of little things that people, they maybe don't move the dial terribly much, but you're just able to appreciate them. And I suppose also one of these people who's been playing a role in improving the operations is Shabana Mahmood, who you, of course, have interviewed for this week's issue, Anoush. Do you think that she's conscious of cleaning up the the Starmer operation? Yeah, she was very diplomatic about it, but she did accept that there were lots of changes to be made. And she's talked me through some of her methods, which had, you know, been reported by some people as she took the job, like um, imposing the sort of 8am strategy calls uh, for senior party staff every morning. And she was like, and it doesn't stop at weekends. <laughs> and I was like, wow, OK. And, and she was, yeah, she, she made it clear that these meetings, you know, can be quite combative and, and she's sort of demanding quite a lot from the party, which obviously tells you something about the you know, the regime before she came in. She's obviously made quite a few changes in the sort of way that the party operates. And from what she was saying, it feels like it is a more focused, sharper operation. You guys probably see more of that than I do. But from what you're saying, it sounds like that's... Yeah, well, it's good that her her account of it sort of diplomatically tallies with other people's experience of it. I was speaking to one person who attends those 8am calls with her. And Shabana Mahmood and then her deputy, Conor McGinn, between them, I think, you know, it was described as tough love. And I think other people have described it as, you know, they're they're given quite a bollocking. (laughs) And and one of the people who attends it was saying, you know, oh, it's really, really good for us. It's really, you know, it's really, really tough, but it's really, really good. And it reminded me of (laughs) that bit in Mean Girls where people talk about Regina George punching them (laughs) and it being amazing. Someone the other day referred to the meetings as as bloody, and I said, "Oh, yeah, you know." And so then they said, "No, no, it's good bloody. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. It's amazing." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think it's one of those things. I think people often forget is it turns out if you take this quite difficult job where you are, you know, often underpaid for your skill set, and you know, you have like the press being difficult in lots of ways, you do actually want to succeed, and you also want to know how to be constructive. 
and how to be better at your jobs. And I think a lot of people, I think none of this stuff actually matters in a macro sense, but it's important to get it right to do the stuff which actually matters right. But also, I think, given that we are about to enter the most difficult period of yeah, kind of. If you if you imagine there are no events in politics, there's just sort of the pattern of like the seasons. The summer is usually the sort of most secularly difficult bit for the opposition party because suddenly you know everyone goes like, oh dear, four columns to fill in August. I guess I'll do Labour beef, and it is going to be. I'm sorry, Riz, I have said exactly that on this podcast before, but I think it it is interesting just how quick the improvements have been, and I think it does mean that in terms of navigating what is always quite a hard period in the life of an opposition party it had definitely come for them at the best possible time if you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too then why not subscribe to the new statesman you can get 12 weeks for 12 pounds go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12 Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And now it's time for a section we like to call You You Ask Ask Us. Us. So this question is from Andy. There's been a backlash from most of the country against Tory politicians now pretending they've always been against racism, but who were very vocal about not supporting an obvious and visual stance against racial injustice when it came to taking the knee. Will this make the people trying to fan the culture wars pause to reflect on whether it's a good idea or will they double down because that's all they've got? I mean, I don't have a definite answer in terms of what people who are most involved with that culture war strategy in Downing Street are actually thinking in terms of where they go next. But it's really, really clear that the positioning on stuff recently hasn't really gone so well. And certainly I think that Conservative MPs are increasingly worried about it. Not all of them by a long mile and I actually speak to lots of them and they say oh I hate this woke stuff but I think that they see a difference between privately not liking that kind of thing and making a big song and dance about it and I think that I think there's there's maybe a feeling of embarrassment growing among some conservative MPs at at taking the stance that they did on booing players who were taking the knee and these sorts of quite deliberate interventions by people like the culture secretary Oliver Dowden on areas where he could remain silent the active intervening on those things I think that maybe some conservative MPs are feeling a bit more uncomfortable about it that doesn't definitely doesn't mean that it will have any bearing on what Downing Street does because as we know party management is not great at the moment so if anything the fact that conservative MPs are you know increasingly worried about it doesn't actually mean it will trickle through to what they what they do next. So, you know, with the massive disclaimer that 
you know, probably as with most things, people actually haven't really noticed. But obviously, it has not been a well-managed, as Alva says, response to it. And lots of the sort of culture war strategy from Downing's perspective is, you know, you, is basically to kind of what, find what they see as sort of the sensible middle. To give, I think, you know, an example of, of that, which broadly did work out for them, although I think that also illustrates the problem with this strategy that some Conservative MPs have, which is Ollie Robinson, his cricketer, who had said, uh, embarrassingly, I can't remember if they were racist or sexist or racist and sexist, but six, seven years ago, you know, before he was... Like, historical tweets, for which he did fulsomely, yeah, he did actually a proper sort of, I shouldn't have done this, I was going through a tough time, but I shouldn't have done it. Mm. Yeah, he didn't do one of those, you know, I'm sorry if people... It was, You know, it was an actual apology. And the ECB saw fit, the, the English Cricket Board, not the European Central Bank, this is not a competence of theirs, the English Cricket, Cricketing Board saw fit to suspend him pending a further investigation to see if, you know, there was more out there. I mean, to give you an idea of, I think, the prob- of like both this, the problem the problem with that, though, right, is Oliver Dowden then went, well, look, this has gone too far, which, I mean, yeah, everyone agrees. The problem is, is that the Labour Party wasn't going to go, actually, no, we we think maybe you should should suspend him just just to be on the safe side you know what you know one of those things where it's just like oh the kind of and the question that lots of conservative MPs have including ones who are sort of like a very anti-woke is they go like yeah so I was talking to someone who said they said you know they're like look they said I don't want like a bunch of this stuff taught in schools I don't agree with this way of seeing the world they were just like but we have a majority of 86 they said so if we don't want something taught in schools do you know what we can just do that and they, yeah, they do it you know, with a click of our fingers and they said they said this is campaigning which is based around us going hey we're rubbish and i think one of the problems that i mean i think there are lots of problems with it as an approach that i think have slightly been exposed this week the first is is that the prime minister himself doesn't like doing the i have bad news stuff but in order for culture wars to be electorally sort of powerful for you your opponent needs to be unable to not take the unpopular position, which means then I don't think, yeah, I don't think that obviously they should not have been on the wrong side of what is a 60% proposition. You know, most people do support the players doing that. You know, they might personally have a whole bunch of like, oh, well, you know, I think this is a slightly silly gesture. I don't think it really is. But they basically like, you know, if they want, you know, you do you and booing it is a distasteful way of of of, of responding to it, right? That is, that is broadly where the sensible centre that they purport to want to be in is the problem is is that even if they if they were at that position well Keir Starmer's not going to there is no external pressure for him to occupy the 30% proposition but if they've occupied the 30% proposition but they don't want to have a battle with Tyra and Mings on it well then it's like guys this, you do have to upset people you know, a culture war is a price with a product right the product is you 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 hopefully irrevocably divide your opponent's coalition, but the price is you have to be willing to do that on things which are popular enough, right? Brexit obviously being the other example, right? Leaving the EU a popular proposition only, but but Labour was only in a position where it had to be anti-Brexit because being anti-Brexit was popular enough. And you know the Lib Dems won the one, you know, did so well in the local elections, you know, uh, did so well in the European elections, you know, won loads of Labour heartland seats in the in the Euros, all of which forced Labour into undisputable to say that was not the an election winning position. But they probably didn't have an election winning position because of the popularity of Remain among Remain voters. And you have lots of Tory MPs who are kind of going a bit like, oh, we're not sure this works. Yeah, someone basically said to me, there are two options on the cultural stuff. They're like, either we fixed it, in which case we are a governing party going to the country being like, 
yeah, we did that, but we still want to talk about it. And they said, that doesn't seem like a very good pitch. They said, they said, or worse, we're a governing party saying we've had for five years an 86, an 86 seat majority, haven't tackled any of this stuff and really is as simple as passing a, you know, a bill one way or the other. Could you give us another majority because we promise we'll get onto it this time? I think also the, you know, the kind of weird thing that, you know, some sort of Johnson, um, you know, sort of allies will point out is what they don't like about this as a strategy is it's one of them said they said this is the argument for this is predicated on the idea we won't be able to deliver any of our other promises they were just like it's a tactic of failure boris for all his many faults is i think instinctively quite good at working out where the center of you know kind of if you imagine there's a center of gravity on social issues right and you can either sort of build a sort of sensible kind of liberal centre or a sensible reactionary centre, but you can broadly construct a sort of 60% proposition for either a sort of liberal open position and a kind of more closed authoritarian position. But you, what you've got to do is sort of frame how you are in that bit right. I think Boris Johnson is actually quite good at either doing the sort of, oh, ha, ha, I'm going to argue for letting people wear the burqa, but in a way that sort of says to people who don't like Muslims, then I'm also their guy, which is essentially what he was doing with the letterboxes thing. Or he's quite doing the like, oh, I'm going to occupy this more authoritarian space, but I'm going to do it in a way that it's a 60% proposition. But bluntly, Oliver Dowden has not demonstrated that level of political fleet-footedness. Priti Patel, uh, you know, Danny Fung a very good piece of like, look, so... Obviously, if you said that you weren't, were agnostic on the England team being booed, there was always a possibility that if they got past the quarters, you would have to do this sort of like, I have always been <laughs> in, in favour of the Marxist footballers. And I, I think this is the other problem. Is that actually, I think the cultural stuff requires you to be quite skillful to do it well, which means the attraction of it from a Conservative Party is they don't think Keir Starmer is that skillful. The problem is, is I actually don't think that they are sufficiently skillful either. And I think the events of this week have slightly meant that the people who go, mm, we're not sure we can pull this off or maybe we shouldn't do this, feel a bit empowered to go, hey, guys, look. And that is why you have, you know, people like Steve Baker, like Johnny Mercer, people who've been quietly a bit eh about a lot of this stuff. I mean, I know it's a bit strange that Johnny Mercer is both the kind of let's not do the culture war in England, but, you know what's some possible war crimes between friends although um, he's actually changed his position within the past 24 hours he's he's all against this amnesty now i couldn't quite work out had he actually changed his whole position or has he just changed like i think he's, he still wants an amnesty for veterans i suppose yeah. but when when he's realized what that amounts to he's not he's not in favor actually as it turns out I think you're right that you have to be skillful to play the culture wars to your advantage. And I also think that the the problem with the culture wars is that it's really difficult actually to tell where the public actually is at. I agree with you. I think Boris Johnson has a good instinct for knowing sort of what the sensible middle ground generally tends to be and sort of what people's gut instinct instincts are on these kind of things but as someone who is actually on one of the um, polling panels that I've written about this before how I get these Ipsos Mori polls and they ask me about the sort of issues of the day I've noticed and I think Ipsos Mori are great but I've noticed that the questions about the culture war stuff 
it's really difficult from those questions to work out what people actually believe on these things. Like they have to explain what Black Lives Matter is. Then they have to explain that it's not actually any one group that believes any one thing. And then you're asked your question about how you feel about it. And it's it's the same with the definition of the word woke. You know, most people don't actually know what that means, but you get it presented to you in these kind of questions, which might warp the way you answer those questions. So I think we don't even know how people feel. And I would take a lot of the polling with a pinch of salt. And I'm sure Downing Street have more, you know, have much more granular and sophisticated ways of working out what people think about this stuff. But I still think it's quite difficult to to work it out. What's not difficult to work out, like you say, is basically slagging off the England football team before a major tournament that everyone's really excited about is a stupid idea. And that's why I think they haven't seen the wood for the trees and it's just obvious that it was going to go wrong. And like, I think some... Tories who you were saying who have been a little bit apprehensive about this stuff were saying right at the beginning, you know, you, during the Liz Truss speech where she said about how she didn't like the fact that, I don't know what, what it was, but it was about her school and she was talking about how people were being only taught about sexuality or feminism or something. I can't remember. But it was one of those sort of early cultural speeches. Yeah, not enough time spent teaching, reading and writing. Yeah. Too much woke stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. One of those kind of things. So that, Liz was... Truss actually can't read. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there was definitely around that speech some people were voicing their apprehension about this kind of strategy. And one of the arguments against it was we're going to be the ones who look obsessed with this stuff that actually people don't really care about. Like I, I, you know, I reckon my gut instinct on the taking knee is people don't really care that much about it, to be honest. And then the Conservatives look quite preoccupied with these potentially quite fringe issues. And the Labour Party therefore doesn't really need to do that much work. You know, Keir Starmer doesn't have to ignore the issues like he's unsuccessfully been doing during the early period of his leadership because he can just look like the sort of more mature politician who hasn't been obsessing over this this thing. This is a really interesting trend in our politics, right, which is to survive in politics, you have to be across politics, right? George Osborne did a very interesting interview for the Politico podcast about morning emails, in which he said, well, you have to care about them because they're about your standing in the bubble. And you can't get stuff done if you're standing in the bubble is through the floor. That doesn't actually change the fact that you're standing in the bubble and you're standing outside of it aren't necessarily all that connected and intertwined. I think one of the interesting things with a lot of politics, not just this whole range of policy issues, but I think probably particularly acute with cultural issues, is just how much people who are really engaged with politics just notice things and think about them in a different way. And the other really interesting thing, which I do need to get my act together and actually write up on the website, is Conservative MP, who similarly, you know, they said, look, the white privilege stuff is obviously nonsense. They said, you know, look how great the last decade has been for, like, people like us, by which he meant, you know, black people earning above a certain amount. But they said, but it's obviously lunacy for our argument to the country to be like, do you know what we've done over the last decade? Demonstrated that life is good for rich black people and bad for working class people of all. They just, it's like that, that is an objectively appalling position for a governing party to be, to be sidling into. And I do think this is one of the weird problems of a lot of where they're at is as well as like this stuff is obscure you've got to explain it to the voters you, it's hard to work out you you are relying on having good instincts rather than knowing you know the terrain but a lot of it i think does rapidly shade into slagging off their own record which i just don't think is a healthy place for for government's to be. Yeah, yeah, they did reboot the brand in quite a big way in 2019, but they actually didn't do it by going around the country telling people that 
Cameron was terrible and then May was terrible. I mean, both of those politicians were actually on the campaign trail in 2019 for the Conservative Party. And I think it is a, a real risk for them that some of this stuff does become a, you know, Britain is a state by the way we've run it for a decade. Yeah, and I think that separation is re- really part of why the cultural war issue for them might not die down because I think a lot of the 2019 intake Tory MPs, Lee Anderson being an obvious example, have to la- latch hold of these cultural war issues, not necessarily because they really, you know, are so disgusted by whatever wokeism or whatever they're, they're, they're criticising, but because they have to take a leftier stance on economic policy um, than perhaps MPs in previous Conservative parliaments. So, you know, this is where they get their Toryism from. And I think that's why ultimately they aren't going away, you know, culture wars, because Rishi Sunak has committed the Conservatives to an austerity timetable that looks a lot like the one George Osborne couldn't deliver after 2016, with an electoral coalition that is a lot more exposed to the consequences of those cuts than the one that started to go, whoa, we don't like this. Anyway, they're going to have to do something. I don't think culture wars is the right something, but I think then one of the reasons why it is here to stay is that if your essay question is, how do you do David Cameron's austerity timetable with Boris Johnson's electoral coalition, you do start to very rapidly end up in the, you know, step one, question mark, step two, question mark, step three, culture war, question mark, three, step four, conservative victory. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, our political correspondent, Alva Ray, and our Britain editor, Anusha Kelly. Our music is still Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. We're produced by Adrian Bradley. If you've been enjoying the New Statesman podcast, please don't forget to like and subscribe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.